Well, greetings, friends. Uh, we're continuing our series on the book of Acts. Uh, we're up to Acts chapter 9. We're actually coming to the end of this part of uh, our series. We'll pick it up again next year. Uh, Acts is a long book, and uh, we thought it we'd, we'd break it into a couple of different chunks, but we, this is a good spot to end it with the, uh, the incredible story of the conversion of Saul, who became known as Paul. And um, there's a lot to learn and, and, and a lot of great things in this. So let's uh, pray and ask that God helps us as we come to it. Uh, Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would again speak to us through your word, your word which reveals to us uh, your son and, and your salvation. And so we pray that as we think about your word today that you would speak to us afresh uh, and ignite in us uh, a love for you, a love for your word and a love for your people and a great desire to serve you uh, as we find revealed here today. In Jesus' name, amen. What are these uh, pictures have in common? Have a look on the screen there. What do they have in common? They're all called St Paul's. So there's St Paul's Cathedral on the outside and on the inside, a very famous photo uh, from the Second World War when uh, the, the Nazis were bombing London. And some people say it was a miracle, but St Paul's Cathedral, which is a, a, an iconic landmark in London, was spared the bombing that, that went all around it. Uh, but there's St Paul's Bay in Malta. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, we'll read about Paul's shipwreck and he winds up on the beach at Malta and the beach at that place in Malta in the Mediterranean is known as St Paul's Bay to this day. But if you were to go down to the Mornington Peninsula in, uh, on the back beach behind Sorrento, you'll come to St Paul's Bay. So St Paul is uh, a name that gets around a lot. As a matter of fact, if you were to Google St Paul, as I did yesterday, you'd find that there's 71,400,000 results. There's a, that's a lot of references to this man, St. Paul, as some people would call him. Now, some years ago, uh, I was at a friend's and he had a book on his shelf, which I had a look at, and it was called The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. The first edition of that was written in 1978. And so I looked at it uh, to see who this historian, Michael Hart, reckoned to be the most important people in history. He had number one, Muhammad. Number two, Jesus Christ. Number three was Paul of Tarsus. He explained why he had them in the order that he did. Muhammad, he said, was number one because he said uh, Muslims tend to take their faith more seriously than Christians, so Muhammad had a bigger impact than Jesus. That's a slightly sobering assessment from an unbeliever. But then he also said he wasn't sure whether to have Jesus at two or Paul at two because he said Jesus actually didn't achieve much success. He said he died and he left a very few followers behind him, but it was Paul who took the message of Jesus and, and spread it worldwide. So he wondered whether or not uh, Paul should actually be at number two. But nonetheless, in his ranking of the 100 most influential people of all time, he had Paul at number three. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, have you ever thought just how significant the life of this man is? We first meet him known as Saul. He, he goes on to become known as Paul. Um, and that's the name by which I suppose we know him best. But sometimes I can find myself thinking, oh, that's Bible history and then there's real history. But this is real history. And these things that we're reading about today had a real impact on life. Now, it's very often the case that in our world we make a distinction between sacred and secular. And so if you're reading a secular history, chances are you won't read much about Paul. But he was one of the great men, uh, one of the great authors of, of the, the first century, uh, one of the great travellers, one of the great statesmen, indeed one of the great thinkers, 
one of the great philosophers, if you want to put it in those terms. He was a man of incredible stature whose influence has gone far beyond anybody else of that particular period, really, uh, and in ways that, uh, that others who get a lot more attention in secular histories just don't match up to. Paul of Tarsus. Now, if we think about uh, the map of the, the area, the, the, the region in which the Bible stories took place, of course, we have Palestine down there to the east of the map, and that's where the, the events of Jesus' life took place. Um, but in AD 49, we can work this out from reading history and from putting the pieces of the puzzle from the book of Acts together. We see that in AD 49, uh, the gospel made it to Europe. And so the gospel which started out, uh, the, the, the events of, of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his ascension, his, uh, they all took place in Palestine. But the message spread and by AD 49, as we'll read when we get to Acts 16, uh, Paul was obedient to a vision and went into Europe. Now we're, I would guess, most of us are European descendants. Uh, we are products of what's been called Western civilization. Western civilization is the outgrowth of the intersection of classical civilization, the Greeks and the Romans, the world that the Greeks and the Romans built all those years ago, but it was the invasion of Christianity into that world that's really produced Western civilization. And so right throughout the Roman world, the gospel spread as people told their neighbours. Uh, one by one, little by little, city after city, town after town, the gospel spread. And so to look at this map here, you'll see that the areas shaded in green are the extent of the gospel reach at the end of the first century. So Jesus was crucified in about AD 33. So within 70 years of that event, the gospel had spread far and wide across North Africa, through uh, Asia and up into Europe. Then by the end of the second century, uh, it had spread all the way through to northern Europe, uh, all the way as far west as Spain. Um, so the gospel had spread incredibly uh, in a very, very short space of time. It was because Paul was obedient to a vision and obedient to the call that Jesus had put on his life that the gospel spread. And he can really be regarded as something like the architect of Western civilization. We're the beneficiaries of what Western civilization has given us, uh, but Western civilization would not exist were it not for the, the Lord Jesus, were it not for the gospel message, and were it not for the missionary endeavors of this man called Saul. Now, Tom Holland is a, a historian who published a book in 2019 called Dominion. Um, he was raised in the church, uh, but well, I wouldn't, it's not so much that he's rejected it outright, but he seems to be more of an agnostic. But he wrote this book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, and he makes the claim that the West is the product of the gospel. He makes it quite unmistakable. He says in there, whether in North Korea or in the command structures of jihadi terrorist cells, there are few so ideologically opposed to the West that they are not sometimes obliged to employ the international dating system. Whenever they do, they are subliminally reminded of the claims made by Christianity about the birth of Jesus. Time itself has been Christianized. What he means is the calendar, the fact that it's 2021. Uh, 2021 what? Well, it's years since something. Since what? Well, since it was once worked out, the, the birth of the Lord Jesus. We now know that the fellow who did that work, I'll have to tell you about that another time, but the fellow that did that work was just a few years out. But nonetheless, 
the calendar that we employ every day when you look at the, the date change, it's one more day since the birth of Jesus, according to that calculation. And that's something that the whole world uses. Uh, well, he goes on, he says, How was it that a cult inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long-vanished empire came to exercise such a transformative and enduring influence on the world? Christianity may be the most enduring and influential legacy of the ancient world, and its emergence the single most transformative development in Western history. So that's not a Christian preacher or pastor opining there. This is a historian who stakes his claim on being able to carefully marshal the facts and mount arguments and support them. And he says Christianity is the single most uh, transformative development in Western history. There would be no Western civilization were it not for the gospel. There would be no Western civilization were it not for Paul. So I've called my talk today, Ananias and Saul, two men who changed the world. As I was coming here, I was thinking I should probably call it three men because we have a look at, bit of a look at Barnabas as well, but we'll leave it for the moment. Well, introducing Saul, I hope you've had a look at Acts chapter 9 already, but just a little bit of backtracking. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, we read of the execution of the first Christian martyr named Stephen. Uh, and we read at the end of that account in verse 58, that the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Then in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read, And Saul approved of his execution. So Saul thought it was a good thing that Stephen was being stoned to death for fearlessly preaching that Jesus was the fulfilment of all that the Old Testament had been looking ahead to, of all of the hopes and dreams of the Jewish people themselves for a Messiah to come. Saul approved that the bearer of that message was executed. And so we read on in Acts chapter 8, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That was what happened after Stephen was stoned to death. They decided that once we've got rid of this speaker, we're going to have to get rid of the whole movement. And so Saul was dragging men men and women off to prison. Now, those who were scattered because they didn't stay in many, many of those who could get out got out of Jerusalem. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So we've seen Stephen preaching the word. We've seen Philip preaching the word, men that are first named in Acts chapter 6 uh, as amongst those who were designated to look after the, uh, the widows, the Greek widows in the congregation in Jerusalem. So Philip goes off on a preaching mission down to Samaria and then at the end of chapter 8, we read that Philip preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So along the way, he's led the Ethiopian eunuch to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Philip Philip was able to explain to that man reading the book of Isaiah that the suffering servant that he was reading about was in fact the Lord Jesus. And that man was baptised and added to the number of the disciples and he took the word with him back to Ethiopia, to the end of the earth. But while all that's going on, we get to chapter 9, which begins, but Saul. In other words, while everything else has been happening, while this scattering's been going on, while, uh, while the gospel's being preached, while the word's being taken out by Philip and, and, and it's changing lives, while that's happening, while the word's doing its work, Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
It's not as though the word is going out unchallenged. Saul wants to quench it. He wants to squash it. He wants to stop it. He wants to obliterate the activities of the disciples of Jesus. So he's still breathing threats, murder against the disciples of the Lord. Note that word disciples. It's an important word in this, uh, in this passage. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, the high priest was like the head of the Jewish state, like the prime minister of the Jewish state, but his authority went beyond the immediate environs of Jerusalem and Judea. And so wherever Jews were, the high priest had authority over them. And so Saul goes to him, breathing out fire, saying, we've got to stop these believers in the Lord Jesus. And he gets authority to go as far as Damascus to continue his program of murder and imprisonment. Now, Saul was a mover and shaker. We've already been told that he was a young man, uh, but he was a young man on the rise. He was an ambitious man. At various places in his letters, Paul gives a word of personal testimony. He talks about what he used to be. And so in Galatians chapter 1, just to use one example, uh, he says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Saul thought that he was being obedient to God by putting an end to the teaching of the Lord Jesus and people who would preach about him. Because for Saul, there was only one God and you couldn't honestly worship someone else, which is what these followers of Jesus were doing. So he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers the, the inheritance that he'd received of what we would now call the Old Testament. In Philippians 3, he says that as to the law, in other words, as to observing the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. He was as Jewish as you could be. And he was a better Jew than most of his contemporaries. In fact, he was right at the top of the tree of Jewish purity, of, of wanting the things that good Jews wanted. And as a part of, as an expression of that, he was prepared to persecute and see killed people who were following what he regarded as an opponent of the true religion. So when Paul, when uh, when we read here about the way, that was the earliest name that the the followers of Jesus took for themselves. That you have to read through into Acts chapter eleven before you read about them being called Christians at Antioch, and even that was a rude nickname. But they called themselves followers of the way. And you can see that at several places throughout the book of Acts. And, and it has to do with life being like a pathway, a pathway that takes us on a journey from here to there, from life to eternity. And it's also got something to do with uh, the idea of Jesus being the way, the truth and the life. If you want to get to God, you need to follow the way of Jesus. That's what, what it means to be a disciple, to be an imitator, to be a follower. And so these were people who were quite convinced that they were on the way that would lead to eternal life. And that was the name they took for them. Saul was an opponent of the way. He was a persecutor of the way. Well, to go from Jerusalem to Damascus was quite a journey. Um, if you look at the, uh, 
if you look at the map here, you'll see that it was something over 200 kilometres. This is before motorised transport, so it was a costly exercise. And Saul took with him a contingent uh, to go to Damascus to do what he said he would do, to put an end to the disciples who were following Jesus in that city. It's in that part of the world that we would these days call Syria. But chapter 9, verses 3 to 5 tell us that as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, three times in the book of Acts, we're given an account of this incredible happening to Saul. On the way to Damascus to persecute, he has an encounter with the risen and ascended and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And it literally stops him in his tracks. In chapter 22, when the account is repeated, we're given the additional information that this happened about noon. And in chapter 26, verse 13, when Paul's telling the story, he records that the light was brighter than the sun. And so he was struck down and he was blinded. So bright was the light. But there was more to the blindness than just the brightness. And so Saul hears a voice. He can't see anything. He's been made blind by this incredible light. But he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which he replies, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Now, Lord is a word that could mean master. It could mean sir. Or it could mean an address to God. Exactly how Saul's using it here, we don't know. It's a little bit hard to work out, but he knows that he's dealing with somebody who is infinitely superior to him. He's been struck down by the light. He hears a voice. No doubt he's terrified. And he says, who are you, Lord? Well, he's already had a hint because the voice says, why are you persecuting me? But the voice identifies himself and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, that's extraordinary because Saul thought he was persecuting Jesus' followers. But Jesus himself says from heaven, no, in fact, you're persecuting me. Now, that's something to really just meditate on, chew over and take to heart. Have you ever had an experience of suffering in particular suffering for the Lord Jesus. Because according to Jesus' own words, when you suffer, he suffers with you. So complete is Jesus' identification with his people that it's as though he shares in their suffering. When Paul was Saul was persecuting the followers of the way, his offence was not against them. It was against their Lord. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, maybe you've heard the phrase or the saying, the Damascus Road experience. It means a life-changing experience, something after which your life will never be the same. This is where it comes from. It comes from Saul's experience on the road to Damascus, where he was on the road to Damascus to do one thing, but by the time he arrived, he was no longer able to do that at all. And by the time he left, he was about something completely different. It was transformative. 
Saul had a theological revolution at noon on that day when he was made blind and heard the words of the Lord Jesus. You see, Saul believed, as all good Jews had to believe, that there was only one God. So every day a good Jew would recite the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 7. O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Saul believed that. He believed there's one God. It was just an article of faith. But now he's had an experience that hasn't caused him not to believe that, but it has enlarged his understanding of who that one God is. There's overtones here of another very famous encounter with God from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. I hope you read it before. But in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was commissioned by God to return to Egypt and to play his part in the work that God wanted to do in rescuing his people from Egypt to take them into the promised land, take them from Egypt where they'd been slaves to a land that sounds a lot like a restored Garden of Eden. But in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 to 8, Moses is arrested by the sight of a bush which is being burned up. Well, it's burning, but it doesn't get consumed. And a voice speaks to him from that bush. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. They're the ones that Saul called his fathers because they're fathers in the faith of Israel. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. That's what he understood was going on. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I know their sufferings and I have come down to help them. Now there are echoes of that in what's happening on the road to Damascus with Saul. And so Saul's theological revolution was this. He's come to an understanding, lying flat out on the ground, that the God of his fathers has come down to rescue his people. And Saul was acting like Pharaoh. Saul had missed the Lord Jesus. He had not understood him and he stood opposed to him. Saul thought he was persecuting the followers of Jesus, but now one who has ascended to the right hand of God reveals himself in majesty to Saul and Saul is rightly terrified because he realises the one he's addressing is Lord and God and he's opposing him. Not just his people, he's opposing God. That was a theological revolution for him. He thought he was standing up for God, but he's just discovered the depth of his sin and the depth of his enmity towards God. And so a transformed Saul, a partially transformed Saul, is led by the hand into Damascus. He finishes his journey not riding in triumph. We're not told he went on a horse. Who knows what he went on? But he went out with orders, he went out as this brash young man intent on using violent means to suppress the followers of the way. But he was led by hand into Damascus, a completely different man. And he goes now with different instructions. And so you'll see there, they let him in and for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank But Jesus says to him in verse 6, Rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you were to do. So he thought he was in charge and now he's discovered he's not. 
enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. So he enters a, a period of waiting, not waiting and watching because he couldn't see, but waiting. Now, Matthew Henry, one of the, the older commentators on, on this passage, he says that uh, this, this period of three days where Saul uh, couldn't see, didn't eat, didn't drink, Matthew Henry says of that time that he was all this time rather in the belly of hell, suffering God's terrors for his sins, which were now set in order before him. He was in the dark concerning his own spiritual state and was so wounded in spirit for sin that he could relish neither meat nor drink. I wonder, I'm not sure, I wonder, so don't take it to the bank, but just entertain my wondering. I wonder if there's a faint hint of the three days that Jesus spent in the grave here. I wonder if what we're about to read of is like a resurrection for Saul. Um, he didn't die to save anyone from their sins, but it seems significant that he was three days without sight, three days isolated from the rest of the world before the transformation began. I wonder. And so in verses 10 to 19, we're introduced to this man, Ananias, and he meets Saul on Straight Street. Apparently it's still there in Damascus, uh, if you were to go today. Um, it's called something different now, but apparently it's still there. And so in verses 10 to 12, Jesus appears to Ananias uh, of Damascus in a vision. Um, Jesus has appeared to Saul, and now he appears to this man also in a vision. Now, in chapter 22, verse 10, it's the only other reference to Ananias that we have in the New Testament. Uh, we read there that he was a devout man, according to the law. He was well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. But that's it. That's all the data we have about Ananias, except that he was available and he was listening when Jesus spoke. And so Jesus says to him, go to Saul. Um, he's fasting. Um, he's without food. We've already seen that. Uh, he's been praying, um, what, for the whole three days? Probably. Probably. Saul's wanting to work out what's going on here. But three days of fasting in prayer is probably Luke's way of saying that Saul is repentant. He's seeking God. But for three days, he didn't get an answer to those prayers. And so on the third of those days, Ananias is commissioned to go to him. And, and Jesus says to Ananias that Saul has seen a vision of him. So Jesus has spoken to Saul and says, a man called Ananias is going to come and see you. But Ananias answered, and who could blame him, in verses 13 to 14, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ananias wonders if this is a good idea to go to what amounts to a terrorist. Now when Ananias refers to the saints there, he means holy ones. That's how he describes the followers of the Lord Jesus. They're the holy ones, which means that they've been united in the faith of Israel because it's, uh, that, that's a fairly common description, the holy ones of God, uh, throughout the Old Testament. But uh, those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus... Um, Ananias was concerned because he's been described as a disciple and Saul has been beating up disciples. So he's in the gun. It's a legitimate concern that, that he would be worried about going to see this man. Can, you know, can he trust him? But when he talks about believers in Jesus as calling on his name, on uh, 
that, that's how he talks to Jesus. He says that the, all those here who call on your name, they're not just saints, not just holy ones. They're characterized by calling on the name. That's an Old Testament way of saying praying to God. Calling on the name of God means invoking the name of the creator of the universe, the name in which is found the character of God. And so Joel chapter 2 verse 32 says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, shall be saved. Now no wonder Paul was angry if he thought that these people were calling on the name of Jesus for salvation. Saul up until this time has, only, has thought there's only one God and that's Yahweh. And that's why he's been so bitterly opposed to this movement. But now he's going to have to have his thinking straightened out and enlarged to realise that Jesus is Yahweh. And it's entirely appropriate to call on him for salvation because his is the name, as Paul will later on say in Philippians chapter 2, that's above every name. And so Jesus replies to Ananias and says, Go, for he's my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The idea of the name of Jesus is very important. Disciples, saints, the name of Jesus. These are important key words that keep operating throughout this this, uh, section. And so Saul will call on the name of Jesus, evidently, because Jesus has said he's going to. But not only that, he's going to carry the name of Jesus and he's going to suffer for the name of Jesus. But those last two things can't happen, or they won't happen, until he's called on the name of Jesus. So Jesus reassures Ananias, yes, it's safe to go because I have plans for Saul. And so in verses 17 to 19, we read, laying his hands on him, Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which he has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised and taking food, he was strengthened. That's true discipleship. We're seeing right there. Ananias in verse 10 says, here I am. Jesus says, rise and go. There was a little bit of questioning, but in verse 17, he does, he went. That's discipleship, availability and obedience. That's what it looks like. Now, why would Ananias have been chosen? We don't, he disappears from the story. Uh, we read no more of him. If, tr- if Saul had truly called on the name of the Lord, he would demonstrate the genuineness of his repentance because you can fast and you can pray without it really meaning anything. But if Saul had truly called on the name of the Lord for salvation, the Lord Jesus, that is, he would demonstrate his genuineness by accepting those he once despised, but with whom the Lord Jesus himself identifies. And David Gooding, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Acts, says this, and this is very important. Here is a basic principle of true conversion. Genuine faith will lead to an acceptance of the Lord's people. I can be interested in birds, he says, without going anywhere near the local birdwatcher society. Indeed, I can refuse to have anything to do with it and still be a very good birdwatcher. But I cannot genuinely accept Christ and refuse to have anything to do with his people. They are his disciples, his saints. They call on his name. And in giving the Holy Spirit to each one, he unites them all in one body. 
I cannot receive that Holy Spirit and refuse to be a member of that body. I cannot claim to love the Lord Jesus and refuse to love his saints. I cannot claim to be identified with him and refuse to be identified with his people. That tells us about the attitude we should have to the fellowship that we're a part of. We've been saved to belong not just to God, but to each other in God's family. I heard somebody say once that, you know, obviously the, later on in Paul's writings, he identifies that, that the church is the bride of Christ. And um, he says, a person who says, oh, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, it's a bit like saying to a man, yeah, I like you well enough, but I just don't like your wife. Well, you'd be very hard to have a friendship with that man once you've told him you don't like his wife much. Um, Saul indicated the genuineness of his, his uh, repentance by being prepared to identify with a humble, obedient disciple, one of the very ones that he'd gone to round up and arrest. And so in the second part of chapter 9, verse 19, through to chapter 20, verse 22, we see that there's a transformation. Paul goes from persecutor to proclaimer. He goes from the one who despised the people of Jesus, the followers of the way, to a disciple of Jesus. So if the definition of discipleship is here I am, availability, rise and go, he went, obedience, availability and obedience, then Saul does that. He proves he's a disciple. Verses 15 to 16, Saul must have called on the name he will carry and suffer for because in the second part of verse 19 and into 20, for some days he was with the disciples. He's identifying with the followers of the way at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. So he's gone there to persecute them. He's arrived and he's joined them. And so verses 21 to 22 tell us that he amazed and confounded the people of Damascus, the Jews of Damascus, because he proved that Jesus was the Christ. Now to call Jesus the Son of God um, is to use Old Testament language uh, that was applied to the king. The king, Israel was the Son of God. Um, the king is the embodiment of the whole of the people of Israel. He was called the son of God uh, to indicate that he had a special relationship with God. But the true Israel and the true king of Israel is the Lord Jesus. And so Saul is preaching in Damascus that Jesus is the son of God. But he's also preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we've talked about this before, and I'm sure you're aware of it. But Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Messiah, Christ is a Greek word. They both mean the anointed, which is another way of saying the king. And so when Saul preaches this message of Jesus being the son of God, the king, the anointed of God, the king, what he's really doing is saying he is the one that the Old Testament has been looking ahead to. He is the fulfillment of all your hopes, of all of your understanding of what God is going to do to keep his promises. Saul has had a transformational experience on the road to Damascus where he's come to see that the one God is one God who has a son and, and this son is God in the flesh, God in a body. God's human representative is God himself. Now, Saul spent a lot of time getting those thoughts together and explaining them in, in the scriptures, but that's the transformation that came over him. Here's another element of essential Christian belief. To regard Jesus as anything other than God in the flesh 
is not to have become a Christian. That's who Jesus is. He is the promise of God in the flesh, in a body. So how did Saul know that? He didn't have a New Testament to look at. He hadn't met Peter, James or John yet. Um, he knew because he knew the Old Testament. And just as Jesus had pointed out in Luke 24 when he met with the, uh, the disciples after he was raised from the dead, in, in Luke 24 he says at a couple of points, really the whole Old Testament is about him. Saul knew what we call the Old Testament very well and he, was, he, he knew which passages pertained to the coming Messiah and having had this vision of the ascended and glorified, resurrected Jesus, he knew that those promises applied to him. And that's how he was able to prove it. And so verses 23 to 25 show us the humbling of a proud persecutor. He has to leave the city of Damascus, not in a military parade, not in pomp and ceremony, but in the most humble of circumstances by night and in a basket because the Jews are watching the gates waiting to kill him if they can. And so Saul, this one who has been transformed and whose, whose teaching now reflects the extent of his transformation, has to leave in humility. And so verses 26 to 30, we meet Barnabas again. We've already seen him once back in chapter 7, but here we find him again. Barnabas and the bold preacher. So Saul leaves Damascus and heads to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem... Uh, he attempts to meet with the disciples there. There's that word again, disciples. Um, when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him. Well, of course they would have been, because it is really like having a terrorist join your church. Somebody wanted to kill you is now there. How would you know he's genuine? Well, Barnabas lives up to his name, which we've been told in chapter 4 was the son of encouragement. Uh, and he had heard enough of what Saul had been up to in Damascus to know that he could be trusted. And so he sticks up for Saul, and because of Barnabas encouraging ministry, Saul was accepted there. And so he continues in verse 28 to fulfill the mission that Jesus had given him because he preaches boldly in the name of the Lord. He went to Damascus to persecute those who had called on the name of the Lord. He's now called on the name of the Lord, and his preaching is of a kind that encourages other people to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, because Jesus is Yahweh. And so for that, he suffers his second death threat, which proves that what Jesus said is coming true right now. He's going to suffer for the name of Jesus. And there were numerous other death threats and numerous other threats to Paul's safety and security as we read the, uh, the book of Acts unfolding. But as our passage comes to an end, we get to this phrase which sounds quite a lot like things we've read in chapter 6 and which we'll read further on into the, to the book of Acts where Luke in setting out his very carefully detailed description of the activities of the Lord Jesus through his Holy Spirit through the apostles uh, the, the, the travel of the word the word going out in power to transform the lives of those who receive it and accept it uh, Luke occasionally inserts these little summaries that say that show that we've got to the end of a section. So here we are at the end of a section. And chapter 9, verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Well, it had peace because the chief persecutor had retired. He'd been transformed. He had a new mission, a new ministry. He had a new outlook on life. The persecutor has become the proclaimer. The despiser has become a disciple. And one of the fruits of that 
in Jerusalem was peace. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The assembly of God's people, filled with the Spirit, were telling others about the, 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 the great good news of the Lord Jesus. And the church grew. It multiplied. Well, as we come to an end, what can we learn out of all this? These are events that changed the world. These are events that transformed lives, but transformed cultures. Because Jesus used Ananias to reach Saul, who reached Europe. Well, we can't be Saul because we can't be apostles. And Jesus doesn't reveal himself in those ways anymore. Jesus has given us his word. And he'll reveal himself through his word. So we can't be Saul, but we can be Ananias. We can be people who hear and obey. We can be people who make ourselves available to the call of the Lord Jesus and rise and go. We can be disciples. We must be. We can be disciples of a kind that is represented when Ananias goes to Saul and says, Brother Saul, a term of affection, a term of family closeness. That was how Ananias had come to regard Saul under the instruction of Jesus. But what can we learn from Saul? Well, throughout his career and throughout his letters, he can't ever get away from that vision and from his recollection of what he used to be. And if the story of the, Samar the, um, of, of the Ethiopian eunuch is a story of an outsider being welcomed in, this story of conversion is a story of an opponent being transformed. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is how Saul sums up his prior life and where he's at now. And so 1 Timothy chapter 1 at verse 12, Saul said, or Paul says by this time, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. What can we learn from Saul? We can learn from Saul that even the hardest of opponents of the Lord Jesus can be transformed when they call on the name of the Lord for salvation. So don't give up hope. Don't give up on anyone. But you might think you're beyond the reach of the gospel. You might think you've done more than can be forgiven. Saul, who became Paul, stands as an illustration of the fact that there is no one who, when they repent and turn to the Lord Jesus and call on his name for salvation, there's no one who will be turned away. There's no one who has moved so far that Jesus can't forgive them. Saul says he's the foremost of sinners, and we've seen there the extent to which that's true. There's no one who's beyond the reach of, the, of the, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus when they come in repentance and true faith. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these, these precious things, these great and glorious truths. We thank you for Luke, your, 
your careful servant as he wrote these things down for our good. We thank you for Ananias and his obedience as a disciple in uh, following the Lord Jesus and heeding his word and going at cost to himself to speak to Saul, his new brother in Christ. We thank you for the image that we see here of Christian closeness and connection and family. We, uh, we thank you for the humility and the repentance that we see in Saul. And we pray that you would help us to be people who are committed to the fellowship of the disciples, people who are following the way of the Lord Jesus. Help us not to stand off or be distant or, or fail to identify with those who also identify with Jesus. But help us, should it be our lot, to, to suffer well for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that when we do, that we can be quite sure that Jesus is suffering with us. But we look ahead to that day that he'll come and transform everything and make everything new. And, and we will see him in his risen and glorified state. And so we would say, come Lord Jesus. But until then, help us to remember where we've come from and help us to remember the call that you've put on our life. And so we pray that you would help us to be obedient disciples, uh, to take the good news of Jesus to all those who will listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.